and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by our deputy editor, Nick Bostock. Hello. And our senior reporter, Kimberly Hackett. Hello. And we're going to be talking about the GP contract in England for 2024-25. Coming up, we're looking at what we know about the deal for the coming year, what it all could mean for general practice and what happens next. We'll also be talking about what Labour thinks about the deal after Kimberley had a chat with Shadow Health and Social Care Secretary Wes Streeting this week. And later on, we'll also be looking at what's going on with regulation of physicians' associates and the ongoing debate about their use in the NHS. And our good news slot this week is about Northern Ireland. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. So obviously, the big thing that's happened over the last week or so is that details about the government's offer on the GP contract in England for the coming financial year, so for 2024-25, have emerged. We're recording this on Thursday morning, and it's likely some more details on the contract and what happens next will appear very soon, possibly even before the podcast airs. So do keep an eye on our website for the latest news. But as for what we know at this point, the headline news is that the government has offered a 1.9% funding uplift for the current year. Nick, over the last couple of years, we've spent so much time on the podcast talking about the financial pressure that practices are facing. So this is clearly nowhere near what practice needs, is it? What do we know about what's on the table in terms of money and what have the government and the BMA had to say about all of it? As you mentioned, the the, the offer the government's put forward is for a 1.9% uplift to baseline GP contract funding. Um, we, we know from a letter that the chair of the BMA's GP committee for England sent to primary care minister Andrea Leadsom that the uplift is worth around £178 million in total. So that's less than £3 per patient registered with um, GP practices in England. We also know from that letter and from subsequent comments from the GP committee just how horrified the BMA's GP leaders are at the offer. The BMA had already made clear that the contract had to offer general practice stability and hope. And GP leaders have told the government that an uplift at this level would have devastating consequences, including a slew of practice closures on top of the thousand or so GP practices that have already closed since about 2015. And the BMA says the significance of this deal is that practices will come nowhere near to breaking even financially in the year ahead. And that as a result, They'll face some grim choices. We've reported recently on a practice making GPs redundant and on the the BMA saying that thousands of GPs are currently struggling to find enough work, even though we're in the midst of a GP workforce crisis. What the BMA's GP leaders have said is that a contract offer as low as this means practices could be forced to look at making more staff, GPs or other staff, redundant. It's largely because the single biggest element of cost practices face is their staff. And it could mean, too, that practices need to cut back the services they provide just to make ends meet. To explain a bit of the background about why this contract offer is so disappointing, this is the first contract offer following on from a five-year period in which GP practices have been locked in to a fixed multi-year agreement that began in 2019. Over the course of that contract, particularly in more recent years, the costs GP practices face have risen far more quickly than income. The five-year deal gave practices annual funding uplifts worth around 2% on average. And in recent years, inflation has been far higher than that. Staff pay rises have been higher than that. Energy costs have risen much faster than that. Practices have been losing out financially over recent years 
And the BMA said the contract for 2024-25 had to deliver a fair and proportionate uplift to cover practice costs. This offer clearly has fallen well short of that basic requirement. I'll come on to this a bit more shortly, but inflation is currently around 4% and the minimum wage is going to increase by around 10% from April. Those figures will shape the kinds of pay increases practices need to deliver to their staff. The uplift on offer is obviously nowhere near that level, even before you start to consider other costs. One point to mention here is that the government has told the BMA that its offer could increase following recommendations from the Doctors and Dentists Review Body, the organisation that offers independent advice on doctors' pay to the government. That advice is unlikely to emerge until after the start of the financial year, though. And with the government's initial offer pitched so low, it's difficult to imagine that the pay review advice is going to move the dial far enough to make a real difference. That DDRB report last year, that didn't come out until July. I mean, that was the one that recommended the 6% pay uplift for salary GPs and practice staff last year. Yeah, that's right. I, mean, I should also mention that the BMA GP committee is continuing to talk to the government. So that channel of communication isn't completely closed off. Um, but clearly, as things stand, the GP contract offer put forward by the government for next year is really disappointing and one that if it goes ahead unchanged, would inflict real damage on general practice across England. There's one other major element to how the BMA is responding to all of this too. LMC's voted last year for general practice to have a vote on whatever contract offer was put forward for 2024-25. And the GP committee has announced that a referendum on the contract offer will go ahead on the 1st of March. An update a couple of weeks ago on the timescale for all of this suggested that practices would get more information on the details of that referendum this week. So as you mentioned just now, more news on this is likely to be imminent. And we'll be writing about that on GP Online as soon as we possibly can. You also spoke to some accountants and GP leaders about this at the end of last week, and they sort of put an estimate on how much it would cost practices. What did they tell you? Yeah, so I mentioned just now that the BMA said practices wouldn't break even if the contract uplift is set at this level, the 1.9% uplift which begs the question, how much will they lose out by? I spoke to a specialist medical accountant and to an LMC chief executive on this, and, and their sense is that the losses an average size GP practice with around 10,000 patients would face if the 1.9% uplift goes ahead could be of the order of £50,000 or more. They're estimating that the uplift could bring in around an extra £20,000 to £25,000 in additional income for an average size practice. But an uplift of that level is far short of the additional costs practices face. Minimum wage, as I mentioned, is set to rise by about 10% from April. The second year running that it's increased by that sort of margin and inflation is currently at 4%. And that seems to be the sort of pay rise that practices were expecting to award staff in the year ahead. So with these factors combined, the expectation is that staff costs alone could rise by as much as £80,000 or so for an average practice. Staff costs are going up, other costs will rise, and additional income won't be going up by anything like as much based on the current contract offer. There's some wider context here too. I mean, I mentioned earlier that practices have already made a loss while they've been locked into the five-year contract. The BMA said at the start of this year that its latest polling shows GP partners' income has dropped by 20% in the last year alone. So the losses next year's contract could bring would be compounding 
what are already significant hits on practice finances. And some other survey findings released by the BMA also underscore this point. Even before this contract offer was announced, the BMA says 64% of practices were reporting concerns over their short and long-term viability. More than half have had cash flow issues in the last 12 months. And the BMA says up to one in four GP surgeries were seriously considering reducing their staff to stay afloat. So again, many practices were already really struggling. And the sense is that for some, this could be the final straw. So I'm going to come on and explain a little bit more about what we know there's in the contract deal. But perhaps before we do that, Kimberly, let's just bring you in here. Last week, you wrote a story about a report that Lancashire and Cumbria LMCs produced about the financial challenges that practices in that part of England are facing. I mean, this is just really good context to explain exactly why this 1.9% increase is so inadequate. What exactly did that report find? So the report is based on a survey of 191 practices across Lancashire and Cumbria. 10 practices said they were at an immediate risk of closure and more than half of practices said they can't afford to recruit the number of staff they need and are struggling financially. They warned that if the current financial challenges remained, then they are at risk of closure within the next 18 to 24 months. Now, clearly, if half of practices across those counties closed, it would be a massive problem. It would mean that around 1.35 million patients out of a total population of 2.15 million could face losing their practice within the next two years. One GP partner responding to the poll said they'd been forced to remortgage their home to cover practice costs, and another said their income had dropped by 40%. Lancashire and Cumbria LMC's chief executive, Dr. Adam Jandua, told GP Online that he was not surprised by the findings and that they reflected the situation across England. He also called for a seismic shift in the proportion of funding ICBs put into general practice and said that many at-risk practices could be saved with an urgent injection of new funding. Yeah, I mean, Nick mentioned that average 20% fall in GP partner income in the past year that BMA polling has shown. But that 40% you mentioned there, that's really shocking. That's completely unsustainable. And obviously, what that report also shows is that this will have a knock-on effect on patients if these um, practices are forced to close because of all of this. We've talked there a lot about the financial impact of what's in the contract deal. But obviously, every year, the contract also brings in changes that determine what practices need to do and the things they need to focus on. We haven't seen final detail on all of that, but there are some things that we do know are in the deal that's currently on the table. So the government has confirmed that it includes a reduction in quaff targets, which the government says will help cut bureaucracy. But we don't know which targets have actually been cut. So we don't know if it will reduce bureaucracy. Usually, when off is reduced, money is recycled into core funding. But again, we don't actually have confirmation that that's what's going to happen. The government's also said that the additional roles reimbursement scheme, the ARRS, which is the scheme that provides funding for primary care networks to recruit additional staff, apparently this will be expanded to cover nurses. PCNs can currently recruit advanced nurse practitioners, so this suggests it's going to be extended to include practice nurses as well. We know that the BMA has been pushing for GPs to be included in the ARRS, but currently, I mean, there's no sign that that is part of the deal. The government has also said that PCN clinical directors' roles will be simplified to allow them greater autonomy. 
from other sources, we understand that this means a simplification of the network contract debt. So this is the contract that PCNs effectively operate under. And what we understand going on there is that the current eight service specifications will basically be pulled together into one overarching specification. But obviously, again, until we see the actual DES and what it specifically says, we don't actually know if that's going to simplify clinical directors' roles or not. We also understand that there's going to be a reduction in the number of indicators in the investment and impact fund. I mean, that was drastically cut back last year anyway. So any further cuts means there's likely to be very few indicators left in that at all. Again, not clear where the money for those indicators will go, whether it will stay at PCN level or be moved in some way directly to practices. Uh, And there's also going to be a small increase in the overall funding for the ARRS. One of the big things that will impact on practices financially is that apparently the government has said that GP employer contributions for pensions will remain unchanged at 14.38%. I mean, that's despite the fact that employer contributions for NHS pensions is set to rise by 3.1% next year. Obviously, if practices had to fund that rise, it would have been a massive cost for them. So this is potentially a very small positive in all of this. Presumably, the government will be making up that shortfall. And there are also apparently going to be some changes in the arrangements for recording vaccination data. And as in most years, there will be some changes in various bits of wording in the contract. And apparently some of these are around patient registration arrangements, continuity of care and electronic records. But we don't have full details on those things yet either. We also know a bit about what the BMA has been asking for, don't we? Yes, that obviously that's quite telling as well. So what the BMA was asking for in negotiations and things that we understand have been rejected by the government is is quite telling. The BMA was asking for inflation-linked increases to the core contract. Obviously, 1.9% is not an inflation-linked increase. And also inflation-linked increases to the item of service fee for vaccinations and certain other payments that practices get. Practices are basically paid £10, 6p for almost every jab that they provide. And that payment has basically stayed the same for years now. And the BMA obviously wanted to see that uplifted in line with inflation. But those requests have all apparently been rejected. In one of her statements about the contract, um, the chair of the GP committee in England, Dr. Katie Bramall-Stain, has said the BMA had also put forward many cost-neutral proposals and solutions during the negotiations. And, you know, the fact that she's saying that publicly and some of the details that we have seen suggest that many of those cost-neutral solutions were also not taken on board by the government. Nick, have we seen any sort of reaction from other GPs about all of this? What's the general feeling about the offer? I mentioned earlier the response from the BMA England GP committee chair, the sense that this could have devastating consequences for practices and could potentially mean a a wave of practice closures. Um, And from GPs, there's a lot of frustration and anger about the offer and its likely impact. Uh, One GP we've spoken to said that if they could retire tomorrow, they would because they just feel so profoundly undervalued by an unrealistic offer like this. There's a sense from some that it's all part of a deliberate plan to underfund general practice, perhaps to drive practices into larger units, for example. The government would say that's not the case, but persistent underfunding is certainly driving practices to close. And the trend that that's creating is towards larger providers of general practice. The average practice list has roughly doubled over the past two decades. We've talked a lot about how practices are struggling with workload, delivering more appointments than ever before, with a GP workforce that has shrunk. And this offer has prompted anger from some GPs and resignation from others. For some GPs, an offer like this, which the BMA is called derisory, 
could mean they decide enough is enough and, and just move on. Others could answer the BMA's call to bolster membership and perhaps add to a drive towards general practice, joining other branches of the profession in taking some form of collective action soon. So that's what GPs think. But Kimberly, you managed to have a quick chat with Labour's Shadow Health and Social Care Secretary, where streeting at an event you were at this week. You asked him about the contract deal specifically. What did he have to say about it? Yeah, so I had a one-to-one chat with Wes Streeting at the Times Health Summit, which took place this week. The event was put on by the Times to look at the findings of its major report that offered solutions to the struggles faced by the NHS. I asked Streeting what he thought about the GP contract offer, and he said it was devaluing general practice and moving in completely the wrong direction. Now, I did press him on whether Labour would offer more funding for general practice. And while he would not commit to this, he did say that money will be part of the conversation with GPs, but that Labour is not going to make commitments this side of the election that aren't fully costed and fully funded. He also said that he believed GP contract negotiations would come early in the life of the next government if Labour was to gain power. And while he was talking to the main meeting, he said Labour plans to give GPs a lot to be optimistic about. But when I spoke with him, he was really critical about the way the government had handled the strikes. He said there had been too many and that it would be a disaster if GPs took industrial action. He said it isn't GPs' fault that people can't access GPs' appointments. And he said there are a thousand fewer GPs and they are delivering more appointments than they were before the pandemic. I can well understand why GPs will be pulling their hair out and perhaps even more seriously considering walking out and leaving general practice. Streeting told me that to improve the situation, Labour would look at offering training for more GPs or reforming the GP contract to put greater emphasis on continuity of care and to free GPs from red tape. You mentioned industrial action there and West Streeting saying it would be disastrous if GPs joined in with industrial actions. But to Nick, maybe let's talk a little bit about what happens now. I said earlier that the BMA will be hoping for a better offer and and obviously it could increase slightly, but it's really very unlikely to go up to the sort of level that GPs want and practices need. And let's face it, the government hasn't budged on set increases in previous years, despite evidence that practices are struggling. So we could potentially be facing a third year of contract imposition. You mentioned the referendum earlier. What do we know about that and how that will work? First of all, imposition does look like the most probable outcome for this year, because as you said, there's there's surely not much prospect of the government moving far enough from such a low starting point to get anywhere near what the BMA and the profession as a whole would consider acceptable in terms of an uplift to the GP contract for 24-25. In terms of the referendum, what we know at this stage is that it will open on the 1st of March, so about three weeks from now. Only GPs who are members of the BMA will be able to take part, and the BMA is calling on more doctors to join so that as many as possible can have their say. We know that the purpose of that referendum will be to give GPs the chance to say whether or not they believe the contract offer put forward by the government offers sufficient support for the profession or not. But we don't know at this stage whether it will seek GPs' views on specific bits of the contract offer as well as their overall verdict. In terms of industrial action or forms of collective action that general practice could take to put pressure on the government, there's no doubt that this offer has moved the profession a step closer to a response of of that type. The BMA England GP Committee voted last spring 
to prepare a ballot of GPs on collective action unless the government drastically improved the contract in this year's contract talks. Clearly, that hasn't happened as things stand. And the PMA has said that unless the government comes up with a better offer, a chain reaction of events could follow. And part of that chain is presumably a ballot and then possible action. There's also possibly a chance that the BMA could include with the referendum some form of question about GPs' willingness to take part in forms of action as well. Clearly, there's a lot still to come on on what's going to happen with the 2024-25 GP contract. We'll be keeping track of all the developments, so do keep an eye on GP Online. And you can register for the website and sign up to our email alerts to get all the latest news straight into your inbox. Before we move on, I just want to mention MIMS Learning Live Digital, which starts on the 11th of March. MIMS Learning is our sister website and education platform, which provides hundreds of online learning modules for GPs, nurses and other healthcare professionals. Between the 11th and 14th of March, MIMS Learning Live Digital will provide four evenings of free clinical webinars featuring expert speakers and live Q&As. Some of the topics being covered include elderly care, early cancer diagnosis and cardiology. To find out more and register for your free place, go to mimslearninglive.com. Moving on, we thought it was also worth having a quick chat today about what the latest is with the debate around physicians' associates. We've talked about this issue on the podcast before, in particular the concerns the BMA has raised about physicians' associates and anaesthesia associate roles, which it says potentially confuse the public because it's not clear that these staff are not doctors. The issue has really come to a head as plans have progressed for the GMC, the body which regulates doctors, to regulate PAs and AAs as well, which the BMA and others say will blur the role of PAs and doctors and further confuse members of the public. The BMA wants PAs to be regulated by the Health and Care Professions Council, which regulates other allied healthcare professionals. So the legislation that would allow the GMC to take on this role was approved in Parliament at the end of January. But there's been a further development on that this week in the House of Lords, hasn't there, Nick? What's going on with that? Yeah, so earlier this year, the BMA and the Doctors' Association UK were frustrated not only that legislation to make the GMC responsible for regulating physician associates and anaesthesia associates made it through the House of Commons, but also that the legislation went through without a full debate in the main chamber of the House. The DAUK accused the government of hiding the progress of this legislation. And as you mentioned, this legislation is something that that many doctors are concerned about because they think it could blur the lines between doctors and non-doctors and in doing so put patients at risk. So the legislation we're talking about is the draft Anesthesia Associates and Physician Associates Order 2024. And in the Commons, it was discussed by a committee and then moved straight on to the House of Lords. Because of the type of legislation it is, it could also have passed through the House of Lords in a similar fashion, considered by a committee and then moving another step closer to becoming law. But we've now had confirmation that the House of Lords will debate it in the main chamber in a way that didn't happen in the House of Commons. This full debate's going ahead because a committee in the House of Lords effectively recommended it. Uh, It said the order merited special attention because it was politically or legally important or gives rise to issues of public policy likely to be of interest to the House. And individual peers have also intervened to bring attention to it. Former Green Party leader Baroness Bennett laid what's called a fatal motion that aims to have the legislation thrown out altogether. It's all in all, the House of Lords aren't going to let this legislation go through on a nod. And that's probably due in large part to doctors' efforts to bring attention to this issue. 
The BMA also released details of another poll last week about doctors' views of physicians' associates. What did this one have to say? This latest survey was about the workload impact for doctors who work alongside medical associate professionals, meaning physician associates and anaesthesia associates. Um, It it found that 55% of doctors said their workload had increased since the employment of physician or anaesthesia associates, more than double the 21% who said working alongside these roles had decreased workload. Obviously, increasing capacity in general practice and other parts of the, the health service is a major driver of the decision to use staff in these roles. But we've heard from GPs that the level of supervision required can be significant, and that may be part of what these BMA survey figures reflect. It's worth remembering, too, that at the end of last year, the BMA released polling that showed almost nine in 10 doctors believe the way physician associates and anaesthesia associates are used in the NHS currently puts patients at risk. So if if the perception is that the way these roles are being used is risky and adding to workload, there's clearly a case for reconsidering how these roles are embedded into the health service. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that the use of physicians associates really is causing a lot of concern among doctors. The other thing that, that's happened recently is that last week, the Royal College of Physicians confirmed that it would hold an, an emergency general meeting to debate concerns about physicians associates. The RCP actually hosts the professional membership body for physicians associates, the faculty of physicians associates. The Royal College of Physicians has said the meeting will be held within eight weeks and a final date and the precise wording of motions that will be discussed is due to be confirmed soon. It's going to be conducted a survey of members and the results of that will feed into what's going to be discussed at that meeting. The Doctors Association in UK, as you say, Nick, who've been very much against the expansion of the use of physicians associates in the NHS, has said the emergency meeting had been really hard fought for and represented an opportunity to shape the Royal College of Physicians' stance on PAs. It's also worth mentioning that apparently physicians associates will be one of the topics that's also up for discussion at the Royal College of GPs next council meeting, which happens at the start of March. But it's not really clear exactly what the RCGP council will be discussing. But obviously a story that is ongoing and something to keep an eye on. Before we finish, we've just got time for our good news slot, which this week we're devoting to Northern Ireland. After two years without an executive government, the Northern Ireland Assembly reconvened for the first time this week after a deal was agreed to restore power sharing. So for the first time in two years, there is now a health minister for Northern Ireland, Robin Swan, who's an Ulster Unionist Party politician who was first elected to the Assembly in 2011. The new government has a huge challenge on its hands as it deals with public services, including the NHS, that are on their knees. Waiting times for treatment in Northern Ireland are the longest in the UK. The number of people waiting between one and two years for a first consultant-led outpatient appointment has risen from 117,000 in March 2020 to over 212,000 in September 2023, an 81% increase. More than half of patients wait for more than a year for an operation, and there are some people on the waiting list who have been waiting for five and a half years. There are some estimates that one in 10 people in Northern Ireland is on the NHS waiting list. Meanwhile, in November, the BMA warned that general practice in Northern Ireland is facing its most difficult situation ever after almost 20 practices handed back their contracts in the previous 12 months. Junior doctors, consultants and SAS doctors are all either balloting or about to ballot on industrial action. Clearly, a new government is not going to be able to solve any of these issues overnight, but we are more likely to see some sort of action to address them now that there are ministers in place. 
The BMA this week highlighted that the 2023-24 DDRB recommendations on pay have not even been implemented in Northern Ireland yet. So hopefully that's one thing that will be addressed sooner rather than later. The BMA has also called on the new health minister to take urgent steps to provide additional funding to prevent more practice closures and to come up with a solution to soaring indemnity costs GPs in Northern Ireland still have to deal with. So obviously, as I say, many challenges ahead, but clearly these are much more likely to be tackled with a functioning government in place rather than without. So I think that's definitely something to be welcomed. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening and thanks to Nick and Kimberly. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do give us a rating and leave a review, hopefully a nice one. It really helps us out. I'll be back next week, so please do join us then. In the meantime, don't forget you can keep up to date with all the latest developments on the GP contract and other news affecting primary care on our website at gponline.com.